0: Hey, have you ever wanted to create your own podcast and share your own light bulb moments with the world? If so, now's the perfect time to do so because audio is the future of the internet and Anchor is a perfect place to do it. So Anchor is a podcasting platform you can find at anchor.fm and it's what we use to create the light bulb moment podcast. So Anchor is amazing because first of all, it's completely free to use. Yep, completely free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. So I've used Anchor to record with other guests on a mobile app, and you can also edit on your computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you across so many platforms, so Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other major podcast streaming sites, so you don't have to set up individual accounts and try to distribute to all of those places. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum subscribers needed. And it's basically everything you need to record, edit, and publish your podcast in one place, all for free. So I highly encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Good luck.
1: Hi there. Welcome to Ida where we address how you can ideate, decide, act on the business topics we talk about in each episode and apply them to your own startup. My name is Kanika Penham.
0: And I'm Varika Penham.
1: We're the founders of IDA, ideate, decide, act. At IDA, we connect female founders to investors, one-on-one mentoring, and resources to help grow their business. In today's episode, we have Dr. Brittany Barretto, geneticist and founder of Fairmore and Metric capitalist. And we'll be discussing lessons that she's learned through her journey as a serial entrepreneur and insights into the world of venture capital and investing. is actually a mentor in Ida during our pilot as well, so I'm really excited that she's here, and thank you so much for being on the show, Brittany. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, as you know, I first came across you because of Fairmore, and that's such a cool concept, and I personally, and I think everyone, you know, definitely wants to hear more about what it is, you know, how you came up with it and created that.
2: Yeah, so Faramore was the first DNA-based dating app that went nationwide in the States. So I first came up with the idea when I was 18 years old, so 10 years ago. <laughs> um, and I came up with it in college during a genetic seminar that I was in. So I was, um, you know, majoring in biology, and I was in this seminar learning about genetics. And the lesson that day was on DNA-based attraction, And how scientists for decades have been able to predict who's attracted to who because of their DNA. And my mind was just totally blown. And I rose my hand and I said, professor, does that mean I can make like a geneharmony.com? And he talked at me and rolled his eyes and was like, I mean, that's weird. But yeah, I guess you can do that. And everyone was just like, God, it's so weird. Because I've always been a scientist that, you know, had a lot of personality. I'm an extrovert scientist um we're we're a rare breed, you know most scientists uh especially ones that go as far as I do in terms of like getting a doctorate in molecular and human genetics, they are usually introverted you know very risk adverse people where I've been always very colorful and <laughs> risk taking and anyways um so that's when I had the idea, but I didn't act on it because I had no idea how to start a dating app and and honestly um what year was this? Probably 2012, 2011. So dating apps weren't really a thing. Um, it was mostly Match and eHarmony.com. So good thing I stayed in college. Um, but fast forward to graduate school, um, I moved to Houston, Texas to pursue my PhD. And uh, while doing my PhD, realized that I could not work in a laboratory for the rest of my life because of that personality you know, issue. <laughs> or strength as you, you know, whatever the blessing or the curse of my personality. And so I started to get involved in the entrepreneurial scene, realized that that was my tribe, and you know, my friends started to ask me, "Brit, what are you going to start a company?" And I'd say, "Well, I just have this one crazy idea for a DNA-based dating app." And everyone was like, "You need to start that." So in 2016 is is when I started Fairmore. That's
1: amazing that you had the idea way back in college and I, don't, I can't believe your classmates thought it was crazy because I think it sounds really cool. Yeah, it makes sense. You know? <laughs> I thought it was cool too. <laughs> and it's like, it stuck with you all after all those years. Like, that, that's one thing that you wanted to do even after you were done.
2: Why was that? Like, was that something that over the years you kept on thinking about or? Oh, totally. Yeah. So, I mean, I would tell my mom about it. I would tell friends. I would tell, you know, like, it wasn't like something on a daily, but occasionally I'd be like, hey, you know, I have this crazy idea. And um, it just came down to a few factors for me to start it. One was that dating apps were um, everywhere. Everyone was on Tinder. Everyone was on Bumble. Okay, Cupid, all of the things, right? But um, we noticed, and it's still pervasive today, is that the success rate is really low, right? There's like such a high volume of profiles that it's like there's no data or science or methodology to actually go on a good first date. It's just a uh, you know gambling essentially. And so when I would say like it would it would be a scientific approach to help you find somebody that you're biologically attracted to, like data would help influence who you go on dates with, everyone was like, the world needs that. So it was a matter of like, the market was also in a position to, you know, accept something that was data driven in the dating industry. And then, you know, honestly, it wasn't like I was obsessed with dating or romance. Um, I'm obsessed with genetics and feminism. And you know, I'm obsessed with a lot of other things besides dating, but it was a cool idea and figured I'd try, try to do something with it. Yeah, definitely. And then you mentioned, um, you know, like,
1: you know, being obsessed with, like, not the dating aspect of it, but, you know, the, the data and stuff and bringing, like, a better product. But this is, like, biotech, you would say, right? Even though it's not, like, a typical dating app. It would be, like, biotech, right?
2: Yeah. So we <laughs> – I would always tell people – my company is the reason they have a category called Other at pitch competitions because <laughs> we weren't exactly life science. And sometimes when we were put in that category, I was pitching against people who were like curing diabetes. Right. And so I try to like come up with, you know, loneliness is also a very pervasive disorder, <laughs> you know. Um, and then on the other side, sometimes we were put in, you know, digital tech category. And I was pitching against people who were doing you know blockchain and so it was it was just never the right fit because we were both of them um it was very much life science but it had a consumer component to it
1: for sure and that's really interesting that you mentioned that about the categories I didn't think of that but yeah that definitely puts you in a hard place um but you know since you mentioned like pitching and stuff like for this kind of company um like I know you raised like a lot of money and then you know even with pitch competitions and from venture capital so what was like most like helpful with like successfully doing
2: that? And, you know, if you can elaborate a little bit more on your journey with, you know, raising funds. Definitely. So I fundraised about $1.5 million for Faramore and, you know, a few factors went into my successful fundraise. So number one is that uh, I'm a geneticist. And so there was something unique about me being the leader of that company, right? So if it was just some app developer saying they're going to integrate DNA Investors would have been more skeptical that they would know how to do that, but because because I was a geneticist, it made sense. Um, so, you know, founders should always be thinking about what is my unique value as to why I should be the founder of this. Is it a personal story? Is it my education? Is it my experience? Right. So for me, it was my education. I am number two. I was incredibly passionate, and I do feel blessed to have the talent of being a great pitcher. So I love putting on a show. I love getting everyone excited, making them pay attention. And so, um, you know, right now I actually do pitch coaching because so much of fundraising is just storytelling. And so I was naturally talented at that. And so I was able to tell a story that got everyone on the edge of their seat. And the third thing I would say is um, I actually turned um, a negative into a positive so the negative is that I would show up to um, investor, you know, meetings, and they would assume that I was the secretary, and that the CEO was a man, and he was still on his way. And so they would say, "Oh, you know, are you here to set up his PowerPoint? When's the CEO coming?" And I'd say, um, "It's me." And so um, how I s- turned this around was I started to wear a lab coat to pitches. Now <laughs> any actual scientist would be, you know be like mind blown that you would wear a lab coat outside of a laboratory. Like that's not why lab coats exist. You should not wear them to a PowerPoint. Um, that's not what they're for, but investors don't know that they're not scientists usually. And so what I would do is I drive up to the meeting, get out of the car, put my lab coat on that had, I got it off of Amazon and I had it, um, you know, embroidered to say, Dr. Barretto, founder of Faramore. And I would walk into these meetings in a lab coat, and they'd say, oh, Dr. Barreto, welcome. Do you need any coffee? Do you want water? We're so excited for your pitch. And it was like my Superman cape. It was my Superwoman cape, right? It was like, all of a sudden, I was in command, I was in charge, a white coat demands respect, demands that you listen to me, um, implies that you should believe me. And also, it, it also took out that element of like, nervousness because i'm a young attractive woman right it took that out of the the equation because lab coats are non-conforming and not flattering and so it was like that's not an element here to worry about anymore right it was just like it's all science it's all business
1: i think it's brilliant first of all that you did that you turned your negative into a positive but on the same side the fact that you know you are this brilliant person and without even like giving you a chance it's just assumed you are the secretary or like you're working for somebody and you know it's not your company i think that's like the thing that society needs to work towards is, like we don't have to like wear a white coat like you should have like the white mm-hmm. to represent yourself like the respect oh, yeah. that you've should have gotten anyway that's so yeah crazy that they didn't yeah,
2: have to and maybe that's not an issue so much in maybe new york or silicon valley but at least in texas Um, Texas, a lot of the money is oil and gas money. And so people in oil and gas usually only see older white men as Mm -hmm. the people of influence or power. And so I think that I, you know, had a a bigger hill to climb fundraising in Texas, um, in Houston, but uh, nevertheless, I persevered. And I think that if you get creative, you can overcome any bound, you know, barrier. That's
1: amazing. And congrats on such a, you know, big fundraising round, like $1.5 million. And, um, you know, during, you know, when we were talking about this, like, what you do currently, because, you know, you were so good at storytelling, you mentioned that you're a pitch coach now, right? So what are some of the things that you see, like, mistakes that, like, most people
2: make that they don't notice typically? All right. So uh, number one is for the ladies. You gotta stop saying sorry. You gotta stop saying sorry in your pitch. I've never heard a man pitch and maybe skip a slide too quickly or mispronounce something or cough in his presentation and then say he was sorry. Never. But (laughs) I constantly, every single day, see a woman accidentally go to the wrong slide. Maybe she, you know, the microphone turned off for a second and then it turned back on. And the woman immediately is like, oh, I'm so sorry, everyone. Sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm just begging you. Get the word "sorry" out of your vocabulary. Just move on. Don't say sorry. Just keep going on with the pitch. So that's number one, ladies. Stop saying sorry. Um, number two is uh, people skip out on the two most important parts of the pitch deck. It's crazy to me. This is the most commonly, um, you know, not included information in a pitch deck. Yet it is the most important thing that investors look for. And number that is the business model. So investors want to see the unit economics of their business model. So let's say you have an app. I want to see a slide titled business model. And it says, you know, monthly subscription, $10. And, you know, 10% of market equals 1 million users. 1 million times 10 per month equals $10 million per month recurring revenue. Like I want those unit economics. Or maybe you are selling a hardware, and so there's this thing called COGS, cost of goods sold, which is the the money you have to spend to make this product, right? So let's say you're selling um, a lawnmower. I don't know, right? <laughs> you're selling a lawnmower, and your business model should say, you know, selling for $100, COGS equals $30, profit margin equals 70%, um, and then you say, like, you know uh, – 10,000 lawnmowers sold per month equals X revenue, right? So include uh, that those unit economics your business model. And number two is when if you're in uh, fundraising and you're asking for money, please do not show a pie chart showing what percentage of the money is going to marketing, what percentage of the money is going to the CEO. <laughs> do not, I don't care. I literally don't care where you spend my money. What I care about is... What milestones will you accomplish that will increase the value of your company and therefore the value of my investment? So on the last slide, when you say seeking one million dollars investment, I want you to write on that slide milestones colon and list four to five things that you will accomplish if you get this money. And so these are oftentimes like hit one million dollars in revenue, or you know scale to um, you know uh, a new part of the country or 10,000 downloads, or launch version three of the app, or secure two additional patents. So things that you know, I you know, comprehend that you may need to hire people for it, you may need to buy an office, you may need to pay for Facebook ads, but I don't want to see that. I want to see what will you accomplish with my money that will increase the value of the company? Those are the two biggest mistakes. And uh, I literally every day am editing pitch decks to accommodate those data points. Those are some really good points
1: because I think like a lot of people try to do is like break it down to see, like justify how they're spending your money, but they forget that at the end of the day, it's important to show where you'll end up with the money.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Say that a company has all of these lined up, like right, all their ducks in a row. What would make one startup stand out from the other? Like acquire funds over someone else?
2: Yeah, so investors are always assuming there's at least four other people in the world working on your exact idea. You may say that's impossible. You have patents. You're the first. You're the only. But investors are just automatically assuming four other people in the world are working on it. And so if we are trying to pick who to invest in, we're trying to pick who do we think is the best person to be most successful in this you know, um, industry or with this product with this technology and so excuse me so if we are cool with your business model we're excited about your product the last thing to decide if we're going to invest in you or not is are you a founder that we believe is going to hustle work really really hard is going to be you know transparent and honest with me are you humble are you coachable Um, You know, I have some founders that have amazing business models. They have millions in revenue. It's a perfect, perfect deal to put money into, right? It's like a, it's a slam dunk, but the founder is super arrogant or they are just super cocky because they're like, look at how good I'm doing. Investors hate that. We do not like that. It's very similar to um, Adam Newman of WeWork, right? He was like, (laughs) I'm the king of the world. And um, you know, unfortunately, some investors still put their money in and see what happens. You know, um, so for me, the the last critical factor is: uh, can do I feel like I could work with that founder?
1: It's a great point um, that you mentioned about. Actually, I never heard that before. That they assume that, um, you know, four people in the world are working on it. But that's really interesting. And you know, you're saying we, and I know that you're, you know, you are an investor. So if you could talk a little bit about how you do you transition, um, you know, from Getting your PhD to starting a company to you know becoming a venture capitalist,
2: and you know what you learned in that process. Yeah. Well, it's a funny and kind of sad, but also kind of cool story. Um, (laughs) So I did Fairmore for three years. In that time, I graduated with my PhD, um, and then around this time last year, 2019, I was about to close a Series A, two million dollar round with two VCs, one from New York, one from LA. And, you know, things were looking really good. And unfortunately, Apple released new policies for their app store. And last year, one of the new policies was that not any app could ask for your DNA. Only certain apps could ask for your DNA. And unfortunately, dating apps became prohibited. So dating apps are not allowed to ask for your DNA on, that, on the iPhone app store. As a geneticist, I think this is a great idea because previously anyone could create an app and tell you to send them your spit without any regulation, but um, it's really bad for our business because we got kicked off the app store. And so when we got kicked off the app store, our VCs pulled out, they didn't invest, and then we ran out of money. And so I actually closed the company in June, 2019. So it's a sad story. It's actually very sad, sad, but- that is all that's the start of journey. And, um, you know, uh, my investors actually were quite proud of me because they said, well, you're a real entrepreneur now, you know, this is high risk. And you it's not your fault. It's Apple, you know, you can't do anything about it. So my company essentially is closed. And, uh, and, and then that same month in June, I got a job with Capital Factory as the Senior Venture Associate for Houston. So Capital Factory is based in Austin, but they invest and they support startups throughout Texas. And they didn't have anyone on the ground in Houston. So they hired me to build their Houston branch. And so I've been doing that now for almost a year. And it's been really cool to transition from the side of the table where I was asking for money to being on the side of the table where I'm giving advice and potentially giving out money.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. And, um, you know, I'm really glad like well that is a sad story i'm really glad that like you found it within one month so that's like a really you know quick change and you know as a vc now being on the other side of the table um what has been your like biggest takeaway as you know looking at it from the other side like giving money out to companies what startups can do differently and you know your biggest lesson learned in this new world
2: sure so here's a few a few thoughts number one is I thought investors were the smartest, savviest, most powerful people. And now that I sit at the table with them and I go to meetings with them and conferences, I realize they're just people who like have MBAs. (laughs) Uh, They are just people who pick this career route and they're not gods and they're not all that, you know, powerful or smart. They don't know everything. So when I was pitching as a founder, I really felt less than, and I almost felt like I was like begging or trying to convince them. I mean, I was trying to convince them, right. But I felt very less powerful in the dynamic. And now that I'm in the investor circle, I'm like, Oh my God, wait, we're, these are just some like people, they're just humans. And so I just advise founders, you know, contain, continue to be humble, continue to be, you know, um, don't become cocky because now I've told you investors aren't as smart as you might think <laughs> they are, but. Um, I am saying be less afraid, you know, don't be as nervous, don't be as scared. They're really just humans who are responsible for somebody else's money and investing it properly, right? So just show them a good business model, show them a good deal. And don't worry about them being more powerful or smarter than you, you're likely way more smarter than them. uh, And the topic that you're building a product in. Um, The other advice I would give is, You don't have to remind an investor that they're an investor. They already know that. (laughs) And so what I mean by that is, um, you know, I will set up a phone call between a founder and somebody I think could give them good advice. It's like a mentor, right? Mm -hmm. Now, this mentor also just so happens to be very wealthy and they have made investments, right? Right um, I hate this. I hate when I set up this meeting and then my mentor friend comes back to me and I say, how was the meeting? And they say, well, it was okay. But the whole time they just kept asking me for investment. And I just shake my head in shame because that person knows that they're wealthy. That person knows they're an investor. You don't have to remind them that, right? But if that, if that founder had just gone into that meeting and said, you, you know, apparently know something that I don't, and I would love your advice and your feedback, you know, like, how can you know, you be supportive to my company. If that rich individual is really, really enjoying working with you and really, really likes your company, they will bring it up. They'll say, Hey, are you in fundraising right now? Because uh, I'd be interested in knowing what the terms are. But the second that the founder continues to call people with money and say, like, do you want to invest? Do you want to invest? Like, it's just annoying. Like, investors know that they're investors. You don't have to remind them.
1: That's the thing about investors that you just shared is like shedding light, because I feel like a lot of people do that without realizing having a chance to meet an investor is just a a big deal. So they're trying to make um, make the deal happen really quickly, but they forget that they're also a human being.
2: And if you go down the asking for advice route, that investor will likely introduce you to other people that could give you advice. And they are also investors, you know, and so you go from burning a bridge to building 10. Right. And so like, that is the deal. That is pitching. That is fundraising is how many more bridges can you build? How many additional meetings can you get?
1: That's a great point. Um, thank you for sharing that. I think that's an interesting, like, insight into networking, Um, you know, more so than just trying to, like, reach out. Because initially, like, I think a lot of people, because you don't have those connections built in, you know, you have to start reaching out, but if they just kind of approach it as just like a coffee chat versus a hard yeah. sell, um, like you were saying. Right.
2: Now, I will say, if you're invited to, you know, let's say Houston Angel Network, if you apply and they invite you to come pitch to them and their angels that is a fundraising pitch. Like you should absolutely ask for money there, right? Because that's the purpose of it, right? But if you meet someone and you find out that they're an investor, don't bring up fund, you know, invest in me, invest in me. You know, if the setting is for investment, please tell us how much you're fundraising. What are the terms of the deal? Like that's what the atmosphere, everyone there knows that's what this is for. But if you're just meeting someone, like you don't need to remind them they're an investor. Great point, thank you, Brittany.
1: And, you know, actually, because you have so many you know, areas of expertise, and I know that you already started your own podcast as well, FemTech Focus, uh, which is awesome. So, you know, you also mentioned this passion earlier today, your passion for FemTech and feminism. And, you know, where does that stem from? And what are you working on currently in that space, you know, besides also being an investor yourself?
2: Yeah. So I think, so FemTech, for those who don't know, it's technology that improves women's health and wellness. It's gender agnostic in terms of the founders. In fact, I, I suggest more men get into this field because everyone should care about women's health and wellness, not just women. So it's not female founder focused. It's female technology focused, all right? And this is uh, very broad. So it's medical devices for the uterus, all the way to bras that can you know accurately support women and their backs. It's sex tech things that actually make sex comfortable for women. It includes menopause, PMS, like it's very, very broad. And so I think that I'm really passionate about it because um, three parts. One is I am from a genetics background and there's a lot of healthcare and medical and hormone, you know, stuff that goes into it. And so I just totally geek out when I learn about what is polycystic ovary syndrome? Like, what is the biology of that? What's the biology of menopause? And why does that happen in periods? And I just get so in love with the biology of it. The other piece is, you know, I've always been a big advocate for women's rights. And I think that it's, you know, uh, it's appalling the lack of innovation in women's health and wellness. Um, I'll give you some examples. The anatomy of the clitoris wasn't discovered till 1998. So we're coming up on like only 22 years of even knowing what the clitoris actually looked like in, you know, and the anatomy of it, which speaks to how little science and the medicine has paying attention to the woman's body. Another statistic is the speculum, which is the device that um, is used in the vaginal canal when women get a pap smear done. It was invented in 1886. And it has yet to be an innovated, we're using the same design as made over, you know, what is that 200 years ago? Yeah, like crazy. Right. And so, um, or I guess 120 years or something like so that, like right? Hours. So, yeah. And so um, that's, I feel very passionate about like, this is a really big deal. Like women deserve, women are dying because there's a lack of innovation. And then the last piece of it is there's a lot of freaking money to be made in femtech. So women um, are the main purchasers for healthcare, like 80% of healthcare purchases decisions are made by women. Women are half of the population. Um, This innovation isn't nice to have. It's why doesn't this exist yet kind of thing. And um, so as an investor, I'm also seeing like there is huge, huge potential to make a lot of money in femtech. And so it's, It's a social impact issue for me. It's a scientific exploration for me, but it's also a big business thing. Um, So that's why I love Femtech. And what I've started is this organization called Femtech Focus. And um, our first initiative is awareness. So what is Femtech? Getting people on board with Femtech. And so we've launched a podcast called Femtech Focus. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. And so far we've only been promoting it like two weeks and we have like over 400 subscribers around the world. It's the first femtech podcast. So it's been really, really fun. And I'm excited to see where that goes. That's amazing. Congrats.
1: Oh, Brittany, any last thoughts that you have for entrepreneurs during this time that are trying to raise money that they setbacks so that they can pivot from and, you know, just becoming more resilient, like, yeah, parting advice for entrepreneurs.
2: Yeah, and are you asking specifically during COVID? Specifically during COVID, yes. And then um, in general, too, I think,
1: even becoming resilient for future setbacks, because I think now's a good time that companies can start preparing for how they can do that.
2: Yeah, so my advice for if you're a startup right now um, experiencing the effects of coronavirus, um, the focus for your company right now should just be on survival. and if you're trying to fundraise, I would suggest um, not trying to ask for money from investors, but rather writing grants. There's a ton of government grants for things you may not even realize there's grants for. I would spend your time on um, government grants, and I would spend your time on you know, accomplishing something so that in a few months when investors start to invest again, they are very impressed with how far you've come during that time of crisis. So that's that's my advice for right now. Focus on survival grants and building something that will impress investors later. And then just in general, um, you know, there are so many people out there that want to help you and your company. So um, continue to stay humble and continue to ask for advice. One of the biggest mistakes I made was after I fundraised 1.5 million, I thought I had it all figured out. And there were several opportunities for me to join like an accelerator or a mentoring program. And I thought, that's a waste of my time. I'm on fire, you know. And when it came down to like closing my company, I felt very alone and wish I had a bigger support group of people who knew me and knew what was happening and could support Mm -hmm. me in it. And so um, continue to humble yourself. And no matter what stage you're at, maybe you're getting ready to IPO or something, right? You're at the latest stage. Continue to ask for advice. Continue to surround yourself with mentors because startup life is hard no matter what stage you're at. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that and being, you know,
0: very honest
1: about your experience and, you know, being humble and about sharing that. And it was really great having you on today. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you guys
1: enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and share with a fellow entrepreneur. Thanks for listening to Ida and you can find us at thinkida.com. Until next time, ideate, decide, act.